This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. I'm Danielle Town, and I'm lucky to be joined again today by the investor and author, Jake Taylor. If you missed the first half of our interview, go back and listen to the one from last week because it introduces all of the stuff that we're about to talk about. Jake Taylor is the CEO of Farnham Street Investments. He's the host of the popular show, Value After Hours. He's also the host of a series called Five Good Questions, which is a great author interview series. He is also an author himself. Um, Too many also's. (laughs) So many also's, but that's how things work in life. He wrote The Rebel Allocator, which is a fantastic book. We've talked about it a ton on this podcast. If you haven't read it yet, go read it. And um, he lives in Folsom, California. Jake, thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me back, Daniel. So we are just going to jump right into it. And what we're talking about here is your paradigm of investment hygiene, which is another way of thinking about investing practice, investing process, how we as investors can set up our space, our environment ourselves to make better investing decisions um, every time, really, right? That's right. I think that's a, you just hit on a really key point is that having a, a repeatable process is hugely important. One, just because it's most likely to produce good results, but two, like any good scientific study, you need to have controlled in the environment, right? Control variables uh, and mm-hmm. test like, you know, one thing at a time. Otherwise you don't know why something changed or not. So th- having a repeatable process allows us to be much more scientific in our approach to, to improving and understanding h- how our process is helping or hurting us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as we were saying at the end of the last episode, data is the key to that. Data is the way that we can really find out if we have been improving or not, because our subjective experience is usually that we're fantastic at everything. And really, the only thing that screwed up was some external factor. So I've been thinking about this one in a, in a kind of different context lately. And um, supposedly, 18% of, of the universe is at, the mass of the universe is, is visible. And the other 82% is probably like dark matter or dark energy. So there's this entire part of the universe that we can't even really see. And I think that that same proportion may exist for what you might call like the dark matter of your investment process. There, hmm. there are all these data that we could be capturing about ourselves that we don't at the moment because it's kind of a pain and it maybe it's hard to figure out. Um, so for instance, um, let's say that you, you reject, you don't want to buy a company and you reject it. Okay, okay. great. Do you keep track then of how that went on to do? Like how, you know, what was the opportunity cost of you not buying that? Most of us don't do that. I torture myself constantly. (laughs) I would say that you're in the minority doing that. Um, Now, do do you do this, Danielle? Do you you code the reason why you rejected that company? 
I have never written it down, but I know why. I remember why. At least I think I remember <laughs> why. But maybe I'm wrong about that. So that's, I think, our filtering process. How do we decide what becomes goes into our portfolio or not? can be dramatically improved and informed by tracking why we rejected something. So we don't, you know, you can calibrate your filtering based on looking at the things you rejected and why and how did that go on to do. So let's talk about like a practical example. You know, Warren Buffett famously has this uh, this basket on his desk that says too hard. And it's like that's the too hard pile, right? Mm-hmm. You put things in here that are too hard. All right, so we're going through and we're looking at investment ideas when you go, oh man, this is complicated. This is too hard. I'm going to put it in my too hard pile. Good for me. I'm like Warren Buffett, right? That's um, right. Okay, that's that's fine. And I think you know, knowing your circle of competence is obviously very important. However, when you're just starting out, especially, how do you know if you're being like a little bit too lazy about putting things in the too hard pile? And what if you were to, you could see that boy, everything I put in my too hard pile has done really well. Maybe I need to dig just a little bit deeper under the surface and add some more things into my circle of competence and my results might dramatically improve. We don't know that about our, we don't know what the cost of our filtering is unless we actually keep track of it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually exactly my experience. I think of particularly, I was talking recently about, um, missing out on Amazon, which is like, you know, such a classic thing to say. And the other one is I've talked a lot about is missing out on Lululemon, which I was so close to. And I just had really just started learning about investing. And I just wasn't confident enough in my own decisions. And I think looking back, that was actually probably the right choice from a learning perspective, from a like, was I really able to make good decisions? I don't really know. Probably not, you know, but that company's done insanely well and I was right and my reasons were good. And so it's one that tortures me. So if I, and I do have notes on, on that one and why I liked it and everything. So yeah, I don't know. I, I often debate if uh, mistakes of omission are really mistakes or if they're just good learning opportunities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sl- so I think slowly torture you like Chinese water torture, drip, drip, drip on your head. They can definitely torture you. I think one of the problems is that, like anything with human experience, the bigger and louder the data point, the more that it sticks out in our mind. Yeah. So something like Amazon, where it's gone up, you know, whatever, 100x maybe from when you looked at it. Uh, yeah, that hurts. And like that is this like big ringing data point that says, God, you know, I I really messed up in in this classification of like why didn't I invest in that? You know, whatever the criteria was, that whatever the criteria were that you used to reject it, why'd you do that? Well, how let's look at all of the bases, all of the data points of why you rejected for that specific reason and and actually survey that entire data set because there's probably a bunch of things in there, maybe that went to zero that you're not even keeping track of. That mm-hmm. that you know you kind of have to know what that entire portfolio did and see how what that looks like as opposed to the one big data point that sticks out in your mind. That's not a good way probably for us to assess just sort of like anecdotal remembering like oh man I almost bought this one right like you're gonna skew you're gonna skew what history actually happened if you only use anecdotal data that sticks in your head. 
I think that's exactly right. We notice the ones that are giant, loud misses, and we don't even remember the ones that have steadily faded away into the night. And if we had probably bought all of those, we would be doing really badly in our portfolios. <laughs> it's exactly right. And it's, it's very hard to know that unless you actually keep track of it. Is that um, what you call signal versus noise on the matrix? Is that related there with mental, the external and mental quadrant? Um, no, I, I mean, I would call that more um, internal mental like mm -hmm. i'm i know like i want to know if the filters that i have in my head and that i'm using are helping me or hurting me mm. and so like for me a very common one is uh let's say like leverage too much debt at a company i'm i am conservatively wired in such a way that like i'm very hesitant to take on a company that has a lot of leverage mm -hmm. I can't tell you for certain whether that helps or hurts my results yet. Like I don't have enough data built up in that in that uh, that usage case. Um, eventually, I will though, I, because I'm keeping track of that. And eventually, I'll be able to tell you, as an entire reference class, highly levered companies that I rejected helped me get better results, or maybe the converse. And it's just as likely. I'm not sure. Uh, actually, hurt my results. Like I was being too conservative. And I, I don't know the answer to that yet, but it, I think it's every single reason why you would reject a company should be put to the test of whether it actually helped or hurt you over the long term. And then therefore, you know, make adjustments after that. Like that's how you learn. Yeah, that's the only way to learn. It's the only way to make intelligent adjustments. Otherwise, we're just doing it based on what we feel, what we remember. So tell me then about signal versus noise. This is the external plus mental quadrant. Well, that's, that's really, you know, how do you spend your time? Like, hmm. you know, what are you allowing to blast your senses with, right? And it's very easy to, you know, I, I like to think about as sort of food related and, you know, going on an information diet um, and not, not eating too much of the junk food, which you kind of know when you're reading it, it's junk food, right? Um, but it feels good, right? And it's, it's, it's interesting and you know it's maybe it's a little controversial but it's not going to help you create a better investment process and i think if you were really diligent uh you would actually keep track of your time and how you spent it uh in the investment process like how much time did i spend reading sec filings versus how much time did i spend cruising twitter for you know an investment uh someone else's thesis on it um got so, it so external and mental is the stuff coming in, the, the, the Twitter, the social media, all the way down to the SEC filings, all the information that comes from the outside about what you're looking at. And then the internal versus mental is really the structure and the process that you go through to analyze that information. Would that be fair? Right. Yeah. How do you manipulate all of that information or really all of that data to create information that you then act on? So I think then that brings us to the physical and the external, which is the environment that you have for your investing process. And this is a hugely fascinating area for me because I find my environment 
so influential that when I first started learning about investing and knew, and knew, had never met you, never heard about any of this, that was the very first thing that I thought about. What kind of environment do I need to even be able to start this project? How do you, what do you look for? How is your own investing environment set up? Yeah, I think this is very idiosyncratic to everyone. Like you have your own individual environment that is probably optimized for you. And I would encourage, you know, just like health stuff to be a self-experimenter in this this field, trying things out, seeing how it feels. Do you feel sharp? Do you feel distracted? Um, so for me, and this was much easier pre-work from home and doing homeschooling with kids, uh, which has really impacted a, a lot of my ability to do like sustained long-term deep work on problems. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's I feel like it good, would be but, the opposite in a way. <laughs> well, no, my office is, is very quiet and it's, I'm surrounded by Berkshire and Warren Buffett paraphernalia. And for me, that is just this constant reminder of what would Buffett be working on right now? What would he think is important? What would, uh, you know, what would he be telling me that I should do at this just this juncture hmm. and trying to uh, have that sort of conversation with one of your heroes, even though he's not there. Um, you know, you've, if you've read enough about someone, you, you probably have a pretty good idea what he'd be telling you at this point. So I try to like, I can't hide from Warren, right? He's, he's always around. I have one of those actually like, you know, like they call them fat head, like posters. You know what those are? They're like the no. big life-size posters. Okay. So I have one of those, but it's of Buffett's head. And it's like, it's probably two feet by two feet and it's up on the wall and he's, he's staring at me all day. No, you do not have that. Oh yeah, sure. Jake, that's, a, that's another level. You have a wow. giant poster of Buffett's head and you have it so that his eyes are staring right at you. It's maybe that's not so like intense. directly at me, but he's, he's watching over. He's watching. He's making, yeah. Yeah. Is like he Santa benevolently <laughs> watching? That's what I was just going to, I was just thinking, he's like Santa Claus. Is he benevolently watching you or is he uh, sort of in a, you know, nanny schoolmaster type of way? Watching it depends you? on if I've been a naughty boy or not. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Could go either way. Yeah. Go either way. What else is in your investing environment? Um, so I also like to have a lot of books around, um, partly for reference material. If there's something that I want to like look up again real quick, I know what the book is and, um, and I just like being around books. That's just like my own little, uh, sickness that I have. Um, the smell <clears throat> of a paper book. It's the best. Yeah. I, I, I can't get into the e-reader at this point. I, I've tried and there's just something for me about like physically writing in the marginalia of a book, it just sticks better into my mind. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I hate it because I feel like, God, I'm like trashing the environment by buying so many books and you could have it on an e-reader and it's, you know, but it, it, to me, it's just not the same experience, but. I couldn't agree more. I'm also trying to get into it because I don't live in the U S I live in a non-English speaking country. The best, easiest way for me to get English books is online. And it's like amazing that I can just press a button and get a book. But that means most of my books now are on my Kindle and it's just not, it doesn't pull me in the same way. And it's actually something I truly struggle with 
and have been thinking about in my investing practice because there are many investing books that I just haven't really gotten to because they don't pull me in the same way. It's frustrating. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about the medium and how it will, how how much like gravity it has in kind of penetrating into your brain. And mm-hmm. I, for me, the e-reader, you know, Kindle doesn't have the same penetration as a physical book. I and totally agree. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why either, but I completely agree. And there's something about being able to write in the book and underline it that highlighting with my little pen on the screen just doesn't fulfill in the same way. So yeah, we need to uh, come up with some sort of solution to that, which is probably just buy the paper books and go with it. There's a certain point where you have to go, is this something about myself that I need to work on changing? Or is this something that is just how it is and I need to find a way to make it work? And I think we we run into that problem in many areas. And this is just one small example where you got to make the decision. Well, and I, I err on the side of buying the book in physical <laughs> form, unfortunately. All right. So I want to hear more about your environment because I love hearing about people's, how they set up their, their space. So you've got the Buffett and the Munger stuff. You've got books everywhere. What about like mementos, photographs? Do you have stuff that remind you of why you're there, why you're investing? What do you keep around? Yeah. I mean, I have some family type of photos on the desk, which is a little bit of a reminder of like, you know, what are you trying to do here? You know, what are you building? Um, And also to the kind of long-term, you know, what do you want your legacy to be? And to me, like my legacy is, is in that photo typically. Um, so that's a good reminder, but, um, other things, I mean, I have in the office, there are three different couches. There's three, three rooms and, or, well, there's now there's more than three rooms in the office, but there's almost a couch at every single room. And mm-hmm. I, there's kind of a joke in the value world about like taking a lot of naps. And I, I don't actually take many naps, uh, every once in a while that'll happen, but sitting on the couch and working, like reading a book and taking notes on it, uh, I have found to be, uh, I'm able to just get into it more than I am sitting at a desk. I think what it is, is having the electronic anywhere near me, whether it's my phone or the laptop or desktop, whatever it is, is just like this little like niggling distraction Hmm. in the back of your mind. And it just takes like I don't know, let's say like 5% of your CPU cycles and just sort of like <laughs> takes them away from you, right? Um, so not having those around, I, you know, like abstinence is much easier than moderation it, when it comes to electronics. What so do you just do? like not having them near. Put them in the other room? Yeah, just stay away from them. Um, and then they then you can really like get deep into what it is that you're supposed to be working on. I think um, they've done these studies about multitask asking and like we are terrible at it like it's Mm. not a we can't even do it right we're we're actually just like doing one task at a time in in we don't do it in parallel we just like do a really poor job on that little bit and then we switch to this and do a poor job and then we switch back um we're not good at multitasking even though we think that we are and we say that we are uh it's it's not borne out by by the research so being cognizant of how do you spend your time uh with 
your tasks and single tasking and doing deep work. The other thing too is the timing of when you work. So hmm. there's this idea that, um, and I've definitely found this to be true, like for myself, but I am much more productive on very deep, important work writing in earlier in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I'm kind of not really good for much of anything. Um, and what, what the research, some of the research I've seen talks about is it's not so much energy because you do get sort of an energy rebound in the afternoon. It, the, the better term is actually vigilance. So mm. you have the vigilance to stay on task for a longer period of time typically early in the morning. So if you have to do, you know, very deep work, you have higher vigilance early in the morning. Now, conversely, like vigilance isn't always a good thing. If you want to be creative and, you know, thinking outside the box and having like these, like making these big connections, you actually need a more loose kind of diffused mind than you do like this very narrowly focused mind. So I tend to structure my more creative work and like meetings and things when, when it, more creativity is called for in the afternoon when my, my vigilance is low, but my energy has kind of rebounded. And so trying to match up the type of work that needs to be done with when my, my brain and my energy levels and my, uh, you know, how I'm predisposed to be will, will fit together well. How, how much have you experimented around that? Was it obvious to you that you're best early in the morning or did you have to try to figure that out? Um, I don't, you know, it, there, it, it could be like, there could be a strong placebo effect here as well. Like I'm willing to grant that, but just the idea that if you knew that you did better work in the morning and you started doing that, I think it would be sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, um, I doubt even that if there's it was a true placebo. or not. I don't think it's that. I think it's, um, it's probably that, I mean, there's evidence and you put it in the article that we have circadian rhythms um, and different people have different circadian rhythms. And some people have that early morning vigilance. I love that word, vigilance. And for other people, it comes late at night. And, um, and sometimes it changes over the course of a life too, which is something that yeah, I Yeah. You know, what's interesting. I, uh, I've seen some updated research on that actually recently and it Ooh, might tell that, yeah, that actually might not be true. What? Um, yeah. So what the experiment that they've done is that, um, people who think that they're night owls, they take them and they like, they take them camping and like where there's no uh, like external light in the no evening. artificial light. Yeah. Artificial light. And they turn into morning people. This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Really? Yeah. So I, I like a lot of the night owl thing might actually be that just it's artificial light that's kind of messed with their circadian rhythms and that that if you put them in a more natural environment, they they convert over to to being more of the traditional sort of like peak morning and then uh but yeah, so it's that's it, so interesting. That, that original research might have not been; it might have been tainted by 
by modern world of of you know artificial well, light. I'm evening. sure. I mean, aren't we all tainted by modern world and artificial light in the evening? Like crazy. That's yeah. so interesting. I um I have thought probably way too much about which times are better for me at, at what kinds of activities and I find what have that you found for, Well, for you? I mean my main trouble is that every day seems so different that it's hard for me to feel like I'm really having a proper baseline level of experimentation on which I can compare two different yeah. days or three different days or three different weeks. Um, but I think I am better the same thing. First thing in the morning, I have, it feels kind of like mental space in a weird way to like get tasks done, sort of individual tasks. Like I can like write the emails and pay the bills and, figure out my to-do list. And if I do, if I leave those things for later, I just don't do them. Like I just don't, <laughs> it's not yeah. good. Um, and then the creative stuff, but I, I feel like is also really great first thing in the morning. So it's kind of like everything is great first thing mm. in the morning. And I just sort of fall off as the day goes. So I don't know what that means. Have you uh, experimented with the Pomodoro method? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I don't like it at all. I think I'm <laughs> okay. the one weirdo who doesn't like it. The Pomodoro method is when you have a timer and you set it for a 20 or 25 minutes, right? Um, yeah, roughly. So like relatively short period. And then you take a short break, five to 10 minutes, and you go back for another 20, 25 minutes, short break again, repeat that about four times. And then you take a longer break of about like half an hour or even I think maybe an hour. And the short working periods, I find like I'm just getting into a task when the thing tells me to take a break. So then I'm like, okay, great. I'll take a break. And then five minutes later, it tells me to start working again. And my reaction <laughs> is screw you timer. I'm not going back to work. I just started taking a break. So it has worked for about one cycle, which I guess means it didn't work at all. <laughs> and I've tried it over and over and I keep on downloading the timers because everybody tells me it works so well. And I just, uh, I don't know. I need longer periods of time. Yeah, maybe try that. I mean, move it up to like 40 minutes or something. And I, I found this, especially with writing a lot is like the first, you know, thousand words and the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes is just like a struggle and there's it's nothing torture. good coming out. It's garbage. Yes. And you just have to keep writing and eventually the flow kind of starts again and mm -hmm. like, okay. And then before you know it, like two hours went by and you're like, wow, I've got like, a hundred words in here that aren't that bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you had taken a break after 20 minutes, or at least if I had, I would have never come back to get to the point where, uh, where something good would have come out. But I feel exactly the same actually about investing research, which to me is also like, it takes me a little bit to kind of get into it. And I'm sort of like, what am I even reading? I don't even, and then half an hour in, I'm like, oh, okay, I've got, I've got what's going on here. I can start to form some thoughts around it. Yeah, I think what we're all looking for is that that flow state where, mm -hmm. you know, time feels like it goes by kind of fast and you, you know, you're at that edge of sort of feeling challenged and you're like you're learning new things, but it's not so hard that you feel totally overwhelmed by it. And, that, you know, that's a very satisfying place to live if you can you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about so much about all these different 
ways of creating a really good, clean investment hygiene. Do you find it easy to follow all the time now that you've created this this framework for yourself that should work if you follow it? Do you find it easy to follow or, or is it a struggle sometimes? Well, it's I mean it's definitely a struggle. The especially oh, really? like I said, like work work from home is is hard and mm. you know I can't sugarcoat it. It's difficult. Um but you know, this is where I think the growth mindset comes in and is really important because there is no perfection. There's always room for improvement. So, you know, I'm trying to just get a little bit better and have that relentless forward, even if it's very small incremental progress. And that's, that is, that's compounding taking effect. Um, you know, there's a, I think there's a mental investment process compounding that can happen over long periods of time of just making little, little gains. Um, and I think you can't in any one day see the difference, mm-hmm. but over a long period of time, it turns into something very meaningful. So, you know, if I have a setback, it's okay. Like get back on the horse, get back to doing what you know is right. Um, you know, you're going to make mistakes. That's just what happens. You're going to, you're going to fall down even in your process a little bit, but you, you know, you know that in general, you're heading in the right direction and getting better and, you know, having that growth mindset, um, you know, realizing I'm not ever going to get perfect. I'm just going to try to be a little better than the version I was before. And I think that's important too, is not trying to compare yourself with other people. Compare yourself Mm. with you, you know, a month ago. Are you, are you better than that person? And as long as you can always be a little better than the person from a month ago, then you're, you're going to get better. Right. So, um, it's, it's a journey just like anything, um, anything worth doing and it's hard, but I find it to be very rewarding to to know that I'm getting better. So, mm. God, that's a lesson I've been learning the last few months recovering from this illness. Yeah. I, I'm up to 35 minutes now of walking, which is very exciting. And when I tell next next week, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And when I tell people who don't know that much about what I've been going through that I'm up to walking for 35 minutes, they look at me like I have two heads because what adult is proud of themselves for walking for 35 minutes. Yeah, but, in your prime, can walk yeah. 30 <laughs> I'm doing so well. Um, and it's just, it's been, it's been, I think, I think I'm, tr- I'm able to use this experience to get better in many ways. And one of them is exactly what you just said. Don't compare myself to other people. It doesn't matter. They haven't been living the same life I've been living. And, uh, as, and, and that goes in both directions, by the way. You also see people who can run a marathon in, you know, whatever a fast marathon pace is, three hours something, and yeah. uh, often compare themselves to other people. And that doesn't matter either. Like, let's just be ourselves and, uh, and try to be a little better than we were yesterday. And that's, that's a really hard thing to do, which is why I'm making this point. When you Can I share one more thing, please. For the, uh, so one of the most difficult things in in this whole investment game is untangling luck versus skill. Mm. As we've as we talked about in the first yeah. session, yeah, we from last week, that. it's so random any one year, right? So <clears throat> here's a little secret to kind of getting uh, a better handle on that luck versus skill. Now it actually comes from a uh, a 1950s weatherman, a statistician named Glenn Breyer. 
And what we're doing here is we're, we're going to track our predictions and we're going to assign probabilities to those predictions. Uh, so let's say that, and how I break it down is uh, on sort of the five drivers of where returns come from. Mm-hmm. So there's revenue, uh, margins, gross margins. There's uh, the earnings, so change in earnings, change in the market multiple assigned to those earnings, and then dividends. So I have these five things that are sort of like key drivers of of investment returns. I'm writing these and down, I, so I'm going to interrupt you and ask you to repeat them. Revenue, margins, earnings, and what were the other two? M- multiple. Multiple. So what the market assigns mm-hmm. a multiple to those earnings, and then dividends. Dividends. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. So... And technically, like there's another thing like with a, a change in the balance sheet. So like if a company pays off their debt, but we can ignore that for now. So five, you know, these five things that I can I can make a prediction about each of those five things in a probabilistic way. I can say, um, I think there is a 75% chance that Apple will have 10% higher revenue in one year from now. And I tend to make these on an annual basis. And, and then, so step one is making a probabilistic prediction. Step two is actually scoring that prediction. Was I right or not? Right. And so if I have a, a very high probability estimate and it turns out I'm right, that gives you the highest score in this. It's called a Breyer score based on Glenn Breyer, who invented this. If I give a very high probability and I'm wrong, that gives me the worst score, right? Because that's like... Hmm you thought you knew what you're doing and you don't. Mm -hmm. Now, in between those where you have low probabilities and it turns out right or wrong, that's not really worth a lot because you didn't really have much confidence of what you were saying, right? So, so what the, the trick is, and this is why this is like such a good hack, is that for every one data point of returns, which is what I get in a given year, right? Like what did Apple stock do in this case? I get five data points on these five key drivers that tell me, do I know what I'm doing or not, right? So if I'm, if I'm wrong on all five of my predictions and yet the stock went up, I know that that was probably dumb luck, right? Hmm. And that I should, I should probably not think that I know I, what I'm doing quite as much. Like this is, if you don't do this and you only looked at what, it, what the return was, you're setting yourself up for the big loss later because you think you know what you're doing and you get overconfident. You're measuring now, yourself only based on the market as opposed to the uh, more, shall we say, reality-based <laughs> scorecard right. that, that is this. Exactly. And we can get more data points on in a faster time period to see, do we have luck versus skill? Ah, yeah, so, true. So we can, conversely, let's say that you you got five out of five, your predictions were right, you had high confidence, and the stock went down. Well, you should then realize, oh man, that was kind of just bad luck. I know what I'm doing. Like I'm getting the right drivers and I'm making the right predictions. I just didn't get the result that I wanted. And But if I keep going, I know that eventually luck tends to iron out and I think I should end up with a good result. I have mm-hmm. some skill here and it's not just purely luck. Um, so I think that's especially early on as you're learning and tracking, uh, you know, how you're developing. I think it's hugely important to do these type of exercises. Uh, and it's a way to compare yourself to yourself, which is the the the, core, is the, the exactly touchstone right. that and, we're looking for. Yeah, and you can you don't even have to. 
you don't even actually have to make an investment in it to track your predictions on mm-hmm. it. Like you could make predictions about different companies, even if you don't own them, to see do I have any luck or skill, or do I have any skill really in this in this game? Uh, and it doesn't actually have to cost you anything. It tends to be better if you actually have a little skin in the game uh, that makes it feel a little more real, right? <laughs> As opposed to paper trading. But uh, but yeah, being able to get those data points sooner, uh, I think is is hugely valuable. Well, let's leave it there. I love it. Um, Jake Taylor, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your years and years of work and experience to develop these this framework and these thoughts around process of investing. I really appreciate that you're bringing this out. And, um, and thanks for sharing it with me. I'm using it. It's fantastic. Well, my pleasure, Danielle. Thanks for having me on and letting me... Uh carry on about a passion, a topic that I'm passionate about. (laughs) (laughs) You and me both. You guys go, um, follow Jake on YouTube at five good questions. Jake, where else can people find you? Uh, I, I spend too much time on Twitter at, uh, my (laughs) my handles Farnham Jake one. Um, and then yeah, check out the value after hours podcast. That's a little, that's, uh, me and a couple of my, my friends who are uh, just tremendous guys and super smart, uh, Bill Brewster and, and Toby Carlisle. Um, and we just, once a week we get together and talk for an hour and record it basically. And, uh, just sort of whatever's happening. Um, and then, yeah, the book is good. Um, Farnham <laughs> street. If you, if you want to <laughs> check that out, a lot of different things to, a lot of ways to explore if you're interested. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. And thanks everybody. Bye. Hi guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding, they really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.